Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. I missed being here last week, but I was having a wonderful time in the Canary Islands with this group, and they send greetings. That's the reason I put their picture up there. They send you greetings from Tenerife, where they are, this group in particular, is a class that meets every month, and I had the privilege of walking through systematic theology, a marathon last weekend. It was fun. I enjoyed it anyway. <laughs> they may have suffered quite a bit. The, the guy down, on here, down here on the end, Donato Hernandez, has been in our church one Sunday last summer. I'm not sure exactly what date it was. He's the president of our Spanish Baptist Union who is a pastor there at this church in Tenerife. About 70 to 80 people are meeting with him in this particular local, as we say in Spanish. Um, it's a small storefront called Punto de Encuentro. And we had a blessed time, both with this group that's studying and um, with his church group. So thank you for letting me go down there and enjoy some time with them. Um, How's your ID this morning? All up to date? Everything good? Mine is expired, <laughs> as you can see. We're doing our best to get me an appointment, but the bureaucratic lines are long. And it's hard. I think I have about two more months. I don't know if they're going to kick me out of the country or not, because besides that, my address is even wrong. So. I'm, you know, I think I may be having an identity crisis before long. So what about you? What is your true identity? And does it depend on having an up-to-date ID card? Or do you use somebody else's ID card anyway? Ooh, we won't go there. Did Jesus have this problem? I mean... After all, he was both man and God. Whew, that sounds like a big identity problem, doesn't it? Of course, if he really was who he claimed to be, then coming to a deep confidence about his identity is really the most important thing we can do. In fact, it's the only way to know your true identity. Have you got that clear? It's the only way to know yourself is to know who he was. In our scripture passage for this morning, it was read from Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples that critical question, who do people say the Son of Man is? You know what? He was not concerned about his image. He was not concerned about what kind of press he was getting out there. That was not it. He was actually concerned about helping them nail down more clearly his identity and his purpose. Who Jesus is was actually the question that all of the Gospels were seeking to answer. But in this particular story, Matthew 16, 
Jesus had come to a crossroads in his ministry. He knew that he now needed to take his disciples to a deeper level of understanding and commitment. Did you ever come to one of those crossroads in your life where you realize, I've got to go deeper. I've got to, I'm really going to take this Christianity thing seriously. I've got to get to a deeper level of understanding and commitment. That's where Jesus was with his disciples at this moment. So he asked that famous question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? This was sort of like a midterm exam for these disciples. He's asking them, what does the Vox Populi say about me? And they knew. They were aware of it. They were in tune. They said, oh, some of them say that you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. Others say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So they were quite in tune. But then Jesus brings the question home, doesn't he? To them personally, he says, and you, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's the critical question, isn't it? What about you? Have you got this clear in your own heart and mind? Peter, naturally, is the one who jumps in and gives the answer that represents the consensus. Really, all of them had come to this conclusion. When he says, well, you're the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, you know. You're the anointed one, the Christ. That's what it means in Greek. The son of the living God. And Jesus immediately makes it clear, this is not just a matter of head knowledge. You haven't just given the right book answer here. It's not just a matter of right doctrine, saying the right words. It's only by a revelation from God's Spirit that you've been able to make this confession. Remember what he said to Peter? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus' identity as Son of Man, Son of God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Word made flesh, the Reconciler, the Good Shepherd, the Son of the, the Lord and King, the author of faith, the author of life, the author of salvation. Wow, that's huge. It's too immense for it to ever be reduced to a simple learned book answer that you just recite. No, no, if you just do that, it doesn't mean anything. This has got to be a deep conviction that only the Holy Spirit can bring you to. It's like the light really comes on, His light. <gasps> wow, His identity is so huge. It takes the Spirit of God to open our hearts and minds to really receive and perceive this truth. And the clearer the vision that you have of who He is, the better you're going to know who you are. And the greater is going to be your strength for facing the obstacles in your life, including the evil one. So let's go back for just a minute to that expression, what Jesus first asked. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Let's talk about that Son of Man thing. Where does this expression come from? The Son of Man. First use in the Bible, Numbers chapter 23, 
It's actually in the mouth of a pagan prophet, we think he was an Ammonite, named Balaam. But Balaam was quoting God. Yahweh had somehow communicated with Balaam. And he said this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Son of man. Man and son of man. They're, they're used in parallel phrases there. They're really pointing to the same thing. But they're saying human beings and their offspring. I mean, if you don't include my offspring, you don't know me fully. <laughs> yeah, my offspring are that important to me. So that's what this is basically about. I'm, I'm, I'm a person, a human being, and their offspring. In Hebrew, the expression is ben adam. You hear Adam's name there? Ben Adam, son of Adam. It became a poetic expression in Hebrew. Uh, you remember Psalm 8, where the psalmist asks, What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Man, son of man. A human being and his offspring. That's what David is asking there in that psalm. So it's really suggesting that. Humanity as a race. What are we? In the book of Ezekiel, the phrase son of man appears 94 times. It's just by itself. God is addressing Ezekiel, the prophet. Every time he calls on him to prophesy, he says, son of man, do this, do that. Son of man. It's expressing humanity in our frailty, our lowliness, our vulnerability there. But the expression is especially important in this passage of Scripture, Daniel Chapter 7 and chapter 8. In chapter 7, the phrase occurs in Aramaic. Um, that was Daniel's court language. So in Aramaic, it's Kibar Anash. Kibar Anash. I don't know if that sounds like any Arabic language here or not, but it means like a son of man. Uh, but later in the book, it also uses Ben Adam. Who was this son of man in the book of Daniel? Well, actually... It was a, a mysterious human figure who appeared in Daniel's vision and he was brought before God and granted divine authority. He was a man and yet he was being granted godlike status because he was given glory and power and dominion and authority. He was even worshipped by all peoples, all nations. And his Kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. It's a very unusual eschatological figure who shows up there in the book of Daniel. So naturally, son of man became a very important messianic title, didn't it? And in the Gospels, we find Jesus using son of man 81 times. It's used in reference to Jesus himself. Either he's calling himself the son of man or it's in reference to Jesus as the son of man. So, in effect, Jesus is claiming to be that God-man from the vision of Daniel who's on a mission to confront the beast. If you've read the book of Daniel, you know that immediately after the presentation of the son of man, there's this vision of the beasts that are coming. The son of man is the one who would confront them. But... In fact, Jesus himself would be tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human being before him or after him, 
Jesus refuses the temptation. He does not give in to that urge. What Jesus did do in his earthly ministry was he went around banishing the beast from people's lives. Can you identify that in his exorcisms? Casting out the enemy. He was banishing the beast, showing his power over that beast. And he was inviting people to repent and believe in the good news of God's kingdom that was coming precisely through him and through his rule. So, in Jesus' kingdom, people would learn how to rule over the beast instead of being ruled by him. We get it? Where would Jesus finish establishing this rule? I hope the answer is just right there in your head. On the cross? On the cross. He is completing the task of establishing this rule in a human heart, in human history. So, for Jesus to understand, for the Jesus disciples to understand his identity, it had to be linked up with the cross in their minds. They had to go together. Because that's how Jesus would confront the beast and overcome it. Scripture uses a lot of metaphors, a lot of parables for discipleship. But the cross is the primary one. And it is the most radical. There are some others that you want to have in your mind there. Sort of like Hebrew parallelism. Let's think about some of those other images that also come up in the the Gospels. You have being born again. John chapter 3. You have mm, taking on Jesus' yoke. You have being a clay vessel with a treasure inside it or carrying around Jesus' death in our body or even being baptized into Christ's death. All of these metaphors really are just reinforcing the same essential message as the cross. So this is what Jesus begins to point his disciples to at this moment in his ministry. And it was a total shock. They're like, what? The idea that the Messiah would have to suffer and be rejected and die was totally foreign to anything these disciples had ever heard before about the anointed one. The anointed one who would come to redeem Israel? This didn't sound like victory. It sounded like ultimate defeat. And so the disciples were just in shock over this. It was so foreign to them. Peter was so, mm, the idea was so abhorrent to him that he actually plucked up his courage and began to rebuke Jesus, the master. (laughs) Told him, no, no, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. Calm down. We'll protect you. And you remember, it also got him the most severe rebuke that he ever received in his life. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Peter had a lot to learn, didn't he? I think you and I do too, don't we? Okay, no amens on that, but you will say amen eventually to that, I know. Because Jesus is explaining here how his suffering and his death are integral to his mission, basic to his identity. 
as Messiah. So the next item on Jesus' agenda, his teaching agenda for that day, was to clarify what it would mean to follow such a Messiah as this. Because as Jesus often said to his disciples, a disciple is not greater than his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. The goal is just to become like the teacher. Is that your goal? Yes. Say yes. That's my goal, to become like the teacher. Okay. So, to teach this, he starts out by saying, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Ooh, we got to stop right there, don't we? What does this mean? To deny yourself? And by the way, it's the same verb that the Gospels use to describe what Peter did to Jesus on the night he was arrested. <laughs> yeah, remember how Peter denied Jesus, denied knowing him. In other words, disowned him, renounced any connection to him. Well, that was big. I'm sure we've never done that in our lives, have we? Applying it here. So if I deny myself, it's like I deny being the reason for my existence. Oh, wow, this is getting pretty deep. I, I disown myself as the center of my life. Can you do that? I, I disown my right to always be in control. My agenda is no longer my number one priority. My fulfillment and my dreams are not the most important thing in life. Is that you? Therefore, my fulfillment and my dreams can be sacrificed for the good of others, for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. That's where we're headed, isn't it? Maybe you say, oh, I already knew this. I'm already committed to this. I mean, I try not to be egotistical. I try not to be overly materialistic in this materialistic society. I, I try to serve others and put them first. So, you think you can just keep your egotism to a minimum and call yourself a good disciple? Is that what it is? Can we just reduce our materialism as much as possible within the standards of this society, of course, and that makes us good Christ followers? Is that it? You know, that kind of denying self is actually taught in Buddhism and Hinduism, maybe with a different twist, but actually the problem of ego and pride and selfish desire is recognized in many religious systems around the world. Sure, it's a common human problem. So what is the difference in Christian self-denial? What's so different about it? Well, in Jesus' invitation, denying yourself is only the prelude. You cannot do it properly without taking the next step, which is actually the heart of discipleship. You know, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I want to confess. I've been meditating seriously on this parable for over 50 years. I still haven't finished understanding it or explaining it. 
But I know it's key. I know it holds my heart. I know it's the true answer to life's enigma. But I also know you have to stay with it. You can't ever assume you've got it all figured out. You have to meditate on it. You have to spend time with the master asking him to teach you what it means in this situation and in that one and in this relationship and that one. Because you see, denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him, it's not just a condition for discipleship. It's not just the basic, without this, you can't be a disciple. But actually, this is God's definitive solution for our sin problem, for our ego-centeredness, for our idolatry, for our brokenness. This is healing. This is restoration. You see, when it comes right down to it, this is Jesus' vision of life. Meaning the cross represents the true pattern of life. That's what we are confessing in baptism and in communion. This is reality therapy. Everybody's looking for the key to the puzzle, the answer to the riddle, the right focus. Jesus says, it's the cross. It's the cross. So let's get real. So what is this discipline the discipline of the cross. What is this discipline that Jesus calls us to in assuming his death is our way of life? Because that doesn't match up to any human logic, does it? Paul got it though, didn't he? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the faith I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the... The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, what we're trying to tame here is the wild fury of our idolatrous human nature. And maybe somebody out there is saying, moi? (laughs) You're talking about me, Pastor? I'm talking about me. (laughs) And from Scripture, I know this is you too. Do you know your old sin nature? Here we go again. Pastors always have to talk about sin, don't they? It is our major problem. I'm sorry. It is. What's wrong with us? Jesus says the only remedy for it is the cross. That should wake us up. That's drastic. But my fleshly nature is utterly dedicated to my well-being, my comfort, my positive image, my long-term security, my good reputation. That's what my old nature is committed to. So the discipline of the cross is absolutely necessary if I'm ever going to connect with a deeper reality than my self-preservation and my self-aggrandizement. That's what I am about. And the cross is the remedy. So, what does this discipline of the cross consist of? I guess more Bible reading, more prayer and fasting, 
Those are good disciplines. I'm not knocking them. But no, that's not it. Oh, well, more church attendance and service and uh, tithing. Yeah, that would really put the icing on the cake. No, those are good disciplines. But that's not what we're talking about. Meditating on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You say, oh, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Hmm. You know what? It's, it's really why the story of the crucifixion is retold so often in Scripture. I mean, four times, four Gospels in full detail. And then repeated dozens of times in the preaching of the book of Acts. Yeah, that's a lot. And then it's explained and reiterated and applied over and over in the epistles. And even in the revelation, the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the earth. And it's not just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. The shadow of the cross is cast all over the sacrificial system in the law. In the history books, you have them practicing this regularly. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. You know what? I conclude from this that God intended for us to contemplate the cross over and over and over to the point of obsession. You think I'm obsessed with it, don't you? I am. I confess it. 50 years of teaching, no, 50, no, so only 34. <laughs> 34 years of teaching systematic theology has just made me a bit obsessive, I confess. I think it's the key. I would love for you to become obsessed with it too. <laughs> because there are three basic lessons that we're going to learn here. A lot more than that too, but I'm reducing it for time's sake to three that will format our inner being. They're intended to format who we are inside so that we can look like our master. The first lesson that you learn from contemplating the cross is your true value and worth. How much God loves you. Oh, I know that already. No, you don't. You do not know how deeply you are treasured until you have stared long and hard into the crucifixion. You know, we all struggle to get a truly objective view of ourselves, don't we? It's, it's a huge challenge, a battle for some people more than others. Getting that right balance between overly confident and self-deprecation. Wow. How do we get the balance? The Apostle Paul understood it in Romans 12, 3, where he talked about don't, have, don't think too highly of yourself. But the opposite of that was also implied. Don't think too lowly. But have sober judgment about you. That's your task. Get a correct perspective on you so that you can act not with you always in mind, but putting yourself Aside, the cross is key to this. Getting a proper understanding of who we are. It, it takes a lot of um, spiritual self-examination. It's a process. And the goal is authenticity. I want to be real. So in this process, I, I ask, am I okay? 
Am I in a healthy place? Or am I always holding grudges? Am I handling conflict okay, well? Because everybody has to face conflict, don't they? Am I handling it well? Um, or am I just stressing out over it? Am I dealing with others sincerely, with genuine love? Or do I also practice a lot of indifference and ignoring and pretense and putting on a mask? Don't settle for something less than real. To be real. It doesn't come easy. But the cross is our reality therapy. God didn't create you for inauthenticity, to go around being fake. Who wants to be fake? No takers. No, we don't want to be fake. We want to be real. This is how we get there. Because the cross doesn't just teach you your value. It also teaches you the value of everybody around you. Oh, oh, I forgot we had to uh, take note of our neighbor. Yeah, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Wow, you mean that's part of this? Of course it is. Becoming like our master means coming to love the way he did. Oh, this gets heavy, doesn't it? Oh, under the yoke with Jesus, he's carrying the weight. He's the one who's done the hard work for us. Just get under there and stay close to him and learn from him. All right, first lesson. Second lesson. <clears throat> As you stare into the cross, it also teaches you what's most important. What's worth holding on to and what's not. Let go of it. Because the cross is the great revealer. It exposes the temporary stuff of earth and directs our hearts and minds to the substantive values of eternity. Okay, I know this is really countercultural. We do have to learn to go against our culture, don't we? Because contemporary culture just wants to keep us entertained with virtual reality. Reality is virtual, according to modern standards. And perpetual pleasure is the closest we'll ever get to eternity. So, our culture just wants to keep us focused on temporary pleasures that will immerse us in shallow versions of the present. Want to be shallow all your life? You never want to grow deep? Come on. I like what British poet, 18th century British poet, William Blake said. He was really just summing up a principle from scripture when he said, mm, we become what we behold. Yeah. And beholding the cross is our way of breaking free from the nihilistic chains of short-sightedness that characterize our world. All the pleasures and delights of this world, 1 John 2 says, they are passing away. They're not here permanently. Ecclesiastes calls it all vanity. Vanity of vanities. It doesn't last. But you know what? There is an appetite. 
that runs deeper than physical hunger and thirst. There is an appetite that runs deeper than sexual hunger or any physical stimulus. There's an appetite that's deeper than the desire for entertainment. Do you know what it is? It's the hunger for God that nothing in this world can satisfy. Get in touch with that hunger that comes from inside you. Get in touch with it by contemplating the cross. Okay, number three. The third thing we learn from meditating on the cross is the nature of spiritual warfare. And this is also reality therapy. In other words, meditating on the cross prepares you for your own cross-bearing. Because there's suffering somewhere in your future. And I didn't need a crystal ball to tell me that. Meditating on the cross enables us to identify the true enemy to overcome spiritual opposition in our lives, facing the trials and sufferings we have to go through. And it also teaches us what to do with our old sinful nature. What do I do with it? You nail it to the cross again and again. No, you don't need a literal hammer or literal nails. It's a spiritual exercise Lord Jesus, I nail that old tendency, that old feeling, those old thoughts, this habit, etc. I nail it to your cross. I give it to you. Do we get it? So what was it that Jesus actually accomplished there on the cross? How did what he do there, what, what he did there, how does it help me face my issues, fulfill my purpose in life, live more fully? Well, notice something very important. How did Jesus confront and overcome the beast? He did it by giving up his life, by laying down his life. Dying. So contrary to human logic, but he was refusing to betray his father and he was refusing to betray you and me. Yeah, no. He would not betray either his love for God or his love for you and me. So as he stood there on trial, the judge of the universe standing trial in a human courtroom, you get the irony? He responded to his human judges. From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man seated at God's powerful right hand. This was the declaration he made just before his death. And it was what helped his judges reach their verdict. He's guilty. And they began to tear their clothes. They began to shout, ah, we don't need any more evidence. Crucify him. Get rid of him. That was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So, from one perspective, the human perspective, the cross looks like this cruel torture device. 
But Jesus would make it into his earthly throne where he would face down all our enemies, all the evil powers that had ever ruled over mankind. So often we do not look at this dimension of the cross and it's so necessary. He was exposing the subhuman nature of all the evil by letting it do its worst to him. He was taking it as he forgave us, as he canceled our sin debt with his forgiveness. He was overcoming with his divine love. In fact, his execution was his earthly exaltation because he was showing how gloriously he was able to overcome and conquer all the evil powers by refusing to submit to them. Even death could not defeat him. So what's he doing now? He's summoning a new humanity into existence. Do you want to be a part of it? A new humanity that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way that he did. By dying to self. By taking up a cross and discovering that Jesus' life and power have now become our life and power through faith in his name, through his indwelling Holy Spirit. So you see, we need this infinite power source to be able to overcome in this life. And strangely, paradoxically, that cross is where we get it. In the cross. Are you taking up yours? Only you can answer that. Would you pray with me? Lord, I give you thanks for all your kindness. Food, shelter, things to have and do. But most of all, I thank you for my family and plead you'll give us hearts that worship you. Lord, I nail my failures to your cross and there I nail my fears and angers to and all my wrongful thoughts and painful memories. I'm praying that in Christ I'll be made new. Lord, I long to learn to love as you did. So forgiving, generous, and true. Teach me now to take my cross and follow so that I may come to be like you. In Jesus' name.